0: Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, please help us out by rating it. And don't forget to subscribe. Now, let's get into this week's message. Good morning, Bridge family. How are you this morning? You alive? You awake out there? All right. Amen. Amen. Hey, uh, man, it's good to see you here, both here in Spring Hill and in Columbia. Hey, we're one church that meets in two locations. We just believe, man, it's important to uh, be on mission, to worship, and to serve where you live. And so uh, we're just excited our Columbia campus is joining us for the teaching of the Word today. So, hey, church family here and in Columbia, take a second, just welcome your church family. Would you do that? Just, just welcome your church family. All right. Amen. Yeah, good to see you. If I hadn't met you, I'm Chris. I'm the groups director here at our Spring Hill campus, and I'm just excited to lead us in our time in the Word today. Uh, and so, we're in this series just, we're just calling Anatomy of the Soul, and. Um, The reason we're calling it that is because John Calvin called the book of Psalms an anatomy of all parts of the human soul. And so that's what we're doing. We're just diving into the book of Psalms. We kind of come back to this and drink from this well uh, every summer. And and really the idea of the book of Psalms is kind of different than other literary genres in Scripture. In the book of Psalms, all throughout the 150 chapters of of the Psalms, uh, what you get is just this unhindered, unfettered, sort of unleashed human emotion. And so you just get this full range of the deep yearnings and longings and emotions uh, of the human soul. And so that's what we kind of do. We kind of engage those and look at those, not run from them. And so uh, today we're going to dive into Psalm 77. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to bring your Bible. If you have one, if you don't have one, uh, we'll have the scripture on the screen here for us to follow along. So uh, while you're turning there, let me just get us thinking the direction of this Psalm by asking you how you engage with your fuel gauge, right? Uh, how we engage with our fuel gauge tells us a little bit about our personalities. We all kind of engage with them different ways. Some of you, in the room are what I call uh, quarter tankers. Like right? you're the more conservative people in the room. Like my dad's a, a quarter tanker, and he's the kind of guy like he's scared of certain types of investments, and so he just kind of takes some cash and puts it in a mayonnaise jar and buries it in the backyard. Not really, but that'd be cool, wouldn't it? Uh, and it just he's very conservative. And some of you are like my dad. Is that when your uh, fuel gauge the hand gets close to a quarter of a tank, man, you're heading to the gas station just to make sure. Like I'm, I'm conservative. I gotta make sure I got enough gas in the tank. Any quarter. Tank Tankers here and in Columbia. Any quarter tankers in the room? Uh, yeah, all right, like two. All right, good. Thanks for admitting your conservativeness. All right. Uh, so some of you are a little more risky. Like you, you know, you you would you would ride a roller coaster, but you're not gonna bungee jump. Like you you would maybe canoe, but you're not gonna go whitewater rafting. You're what I call inchers. When that thing's inching down close to the E, you're going, man, I'm getting a little nervous. I've got to make my way to a gas station. So some of you quarter tankers, some of you inchers, but some of you are more like me. Some of you uh, Christian people in the room are more like me, and you're what I call fuel lighters. You're fuel lighters. Columbia here, any fuel lighter? (laughs) Applause for the fuel lighters. All right. Uh, Listen, this is an actual picture from my car on Tuesday of this week. (laughs) My 15-year-old son, Connor, was riding with me. He's more of a quarter tanker. He's kind of conservative, and he was really nervous about this, right? Because he sensed, but here's what Connor knew. Connor, Connor knew that it was important for, like that we all do. That's why we feel that tension. Some of you are freaking out just looking at this right now, right? And the reason you feel that tension is because you know it's important for our cars to have gas to be able to run. I remember one time I was in high school, and we were coming home from church, and my mom, my dad's more of a quarter tanker, my mom's more of a fuel lighter, and we We literally ran out of gas on the way home from church. My dad had to bring us a can of gas on the side of the road to put in the car. And and the reason we feel tension around that is because we know our cars have to have gas uh, fuel to operate properly. And in the same way, I think that our souls have to have hope to engage. Hope is to the human soul the way fuel is to the tanks of our car. We have to have hope to operate properly, to feel feel fully alive, to take on the things that come at us, right? The problem is that often in our lives, unexpectedly, uh, circumstances come our way that cause us to be empty when it comes to hope in our lives. Our tanks are on empty, and I know that's true. Some of you can resonate because you're in a season where right now you just feel empty, So this week I asked this question on Facebook. I said, hey, tell me a time that you feel hopeless. And so literally I got between comments and private messages, I got over a hundred messages of people sharing all kinds of things that were just painful. One person said this. One person said, "Uh, my mom had a stroke and when she had a stroke, she became paralyzed And now because she's paralyzed, uh, it's been some time now, literally every conversation I have with her, I dread because in that conversation, she's going to ask me why I just don't let her die. You know what that is? That's a comment of a person whose tank is running on empty, who feels hopeless. Uh, Somebody else said this. Somebody said, my adoption fell through after five years. That came after 10 years uh, of being unsuccessful, trying to become a parent. Uh, And so she says, I became weary from the waiting and the struggle. I felt hopeless. I felt depressed. I felt angry. I felt sad. I felt numb. I felt empty. That's the comment of someone whose tank is running on empty. Somebody else said, I lost my son to suicide five years ago and every day feels like the first day. It's now been five years and every day I struggle with hopelessness and feeling like I'm on empty. And some of you hearing those can totally relate. You can totally relate to that hopeless feeling. In fact, uh, some of you have uh, faced so much rejection in your life that you're just, your, your tank is on empty and you're just not sure that you can ever open your heart up to love again. Some of you have faced so much frustration on your job or in a relationship or wherever the scenario is that, man, you just felt so, you faced so much frustration that you just don't feel like you have the fuel in the tank, the energy to keep on going. And if you've ever felt anything like that, this psalm today, Psalm 77, is for you. Because what it does is it sort of builds a foundation for uh, how we should stand on circumstances where it just feels uncertain and where it feels like our tank is on empty when we feel hopeless. And it says, man, here's the first, the foundation that you stand on. But then what we're going to notice as we dive in is about halfway through this psalm, he's going to give us sort of three things to, to tell our soul to deal with the time, deal with the time's in our lives that come where uh, the emptiness in our heart has been filled up with hopelessness, where, where, where our hope has been replaced with doubt. All right. So let's dive in. Uh, Psalm chapter 77, and we're going to start reading uh, in verse one. It says this. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. I'm going to stop there for just a second. If you have an older kind of King James version of the Bible, what you'll notice that that phrase says is this. You'll, you'll notice that it says, uh, my, stretch out my hand. You, you'll notice that it says, my sore ran in the night and ceased not. That's a very gross and literal translation of the original Hebrew. I'm going to come back to it in a second. Um, my hand stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. So here's what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, the anguish in my heart. By the way, uh, this psalm was written by a guy named Asaph. We don't know a whole lot about him. Uh, we know that he was a contemporary of David who wrote most of the psalms. About 90% were from David. This is a psalm of Asaph. We don't know the circumstances surrounding him, but what's very obvious from this is with vivid uh, and, and uh, vivid language, uh, he's telling us that this is the heart of a, his is the heart of a man whose tank is in, pointed out in the King James version earlier that it's kind of like a it's kind of like a, a sore that oozes, kind of like a sore that runs and ceases not is what the King James says. He's saying, "My anguish, my emotional anguish." is so deep that it almost feels like, to me, physical pain that just won't go away. It's just always there. It keeps me awake at night. Like, I can't sleep because of it. I can't think straight. Uh, I I don't even know what to say. Like, it's just constantly there, and it's just messing me up, and I'm just in this emotional anguish that is so intense. By the way, neurologists say that when you feel emotional anguish that intense, that your body actually uses the same neurotransmitters to process deep emotional anguish as it does to physical pain. And that's exactly what Asaph is doing here. He's saying the, pain, the emotional anguish is so intense, it just feels like physical pain that never goes away. And some of you can totally relate to that. Here's what Asaph does next, look. It's in that sort of posture of his heart that he says this. <clears throat> Excuse me. I said, Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then let my uh, then my spirit made a diligent search. So he's in this deep emotional state, this deep anguish, and his spirits go, Man, I, I'm just trying to make sense of this. I'm just searching for something that makes sense that I can put my finger on that's real, that's something that makes sense. <clears throat> my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? Now, what Bible scholars will tell us here is that what Asaph is doing is the circumstances in his soul, whatever's causing his emotional anguish, are actually kind of causing him to not see reality the right way. And to search for, man, what is really going on? And in that search, what we just read is that he asks a series of questions that Bible scholars kind of summarize into one question. That what he's really asking is this question right here. God, are you there? You ever felt that way before? Like God wasn't there? He said, God, whatever's going on in me is so painful. I sometimes I just, I'm just wondering, God, are you, are you there? God, I know you've been faithful in the past. God, are you still faithful? Are you still there? God, I, I know you're powerful, but are you still there? Are you mad at me somehow? Do you think I deserve this, God, or are you still there? God, have you abandoned me? God, God, are you still, are Are, are you there? What are you there? And if you've ever felt that way, you're in good company because the Bible is full of stories of people who've asked similar questions like, God, are you really there? I want to give you a couple examples of this. Uh, The nation of Israel, if you've been around Sunday school and you're kind of a God person, a church person, you know this story. Uh, The children of Israel were in captivity in Egypt. And, uh, you know, Moses went into Pharaoh a series of times and went all Charl- Charlton Heston and let my people go, you know, and, and, and Pharaoh let uh, his people go uh, after God did some awesome things. And, and so they literally are uh, moments away, days away from God providing in an incredibly powerful way for them to be released and to be freed. And what God's people said to Moses was, God, God's people said, man, have, were there not enough graves in Egypt, Moses, did you bring us out? Did, did God bring us out here to die? You know what they're really asking? They were asking, man, we know God's been faithful in the past, but the, situa- the current circumstances we find ourselves in, now we're wondering, is God really there? Uh, and fast forward a couple of generations. Now God's people have made their way into the promised land. They've they've made their way to freedom out of captivity into the promised land after wandering in the wilderness for 40 days. Actually, not into the promised land. They're right on the edge. They're at a place called Kadesh Barnea. And they're standing there, and you know the story from the book of Numbers. If you've been around church, they send spies into the land. The spies come back and report. You go, man, it's treacherous. The people are strong. It's going to be hard for us to defeat the people that we have to defeat in order to see God provide the way he promised that he would provide. We know he brought us out of captivity, and we know he's provided in incredible ways over the last 40 years. And we know that he's promised this land, but we're afraid to go in there. And actually, the quote from the book of Numbers is this. Did God bring us out here so that we would die by the sword? You know what they're really asking? They're really saying, God, you've promised. You've, you've been faithful in the past. You've delivered in the past. But right now, the circumstances sort of seem uh, so difficult for me, we're, for us. We're wondering, God, are you really there? And we could go on and on with other stories of, of God's people who have asked that question, even though we can look back and see the promises of God. Uh, what what Asaph's getting at here in this series of questions is he's he's kind of reminding himself and then us today that God's people have always had the propensity to let their the way they feel about their circumstances cause them to doubt God and ask the question God are you really? there. And so what happens is the hope that was in his tank is now empty and it's been replaced with doubt. So look what Asaph does. Look what Asaph does. Bible scholars and theologians point out that this is the point in this Psalm where everything changes from kind of a woe is me to something else. Look what Asaph does. He says this, then I said, I will appeal to this To the years of the right hand of the Most High. By the way, hold on to the phrase the right hand of the Most High. We're coming back to that at the end of the sermon here in a bit. I will appeal uh, to um, uh, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? So here's what he's doing. He's saying, I'm not going to allow the circumstances that I find myself in and the way I feel in those circumstances to determine what truth is for me. I'm going to allow truth to determine truth and allow my feelings to flow out of truth, not allow truth to flow out of my feelings. In fact, uh, one preacher said, talking about that idea, said it this way. He says, uh, if you allow your feelings to define facts, your doubt will take you out. And that's exactly what Asaph saying. He said, I'm not going to allow my feelings to define my doubt." I, or to, to find my truth, my facts. I'm not going to let my doubt take me out. He's really saying this right here. He's saying, I will trust facts about God, not my feelings. Now w- what's, what's interesting that he does next is, and this is the real heart of the sermon right here. What he does next is he gives us three facts about God that we must declare to our souls in the middle of circumstances where we're tempted to kind of be driven by our emotions and start believing things that aren't true because of the way we feel, he goes, man, no, 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 you can't, you can't do that. You can't trust your feelings. Your feelings can change based on what you have for dinner tonight or what somebody said to you or didn't say to you. Your feelings aren't trustworthy. And that's why uh, the writer of Proverbs would say, so guard your heart, guard your feelings. It's the wellspring of life. So the psalmist says, I- I'm not going to trust my feelings. I'm going to trust God facts. And so now three facts that we have to tell our souls in order to overcome feelings of doubt and emptiness that we have. Here they are. He gives them to us in these next few verses. Check it out. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with, this is awesome, your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. All right, Remember earlier, I told you to remember the phrase, God's uh, strong or mighty right hand. Remember that? Here, he uses the term, your arm. Now, here, here's what he's saying. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Jewish tradition, <clears throat> the phrase, your arm or your right hand, were used to describe, like this was very common. And you see it all through the Bible, in fact. It was used to describe some attributes of God. Here's what they were. Attributes of God like his sovereignty, his strength, his strength, his action and so so when the psalmist appeals to the mighty right hand of God and the arm of God what he's doing is he's actually saying the presence of pain does not mean the absence of God the right hand of God the right arm the, the strong arm of God has been working in the middle is working in the middle of my pain and God is active and God is powerful and God is sovereign And what we have the the tendency to do in our lives is we have the tendency to think, man, the presence of pain in my life means the absence of God. And the psalmist is going, no, 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 no. You can't let your feelings take you there. You can't let your doubt take you there. The presence of pain does not mean the absence of God. In fact, the presence of pain actually is indication that God is actually moving in ways that you can't even see. And there's a great biblical story that, that that tells that idea. Genesis chapter fifty. There's this amazing verse that I'm going to get to in just a second. But it's really kind of at the end of a story of a guy named Joseph that we see throughout a, a section of the book of Genesis. And if you've been around church, you know the story. Joseph had a bunch of brothers, and he was kind of the favorite son. And the brothers didn't like him. It kind of made him mad. They were jealous of him. And so what they did is they said, "Man, let's take him and throw him in a cistern, like a hole in the ground." And so they did that. They took, threw, cast him in a his cistern, and they was like, "Hey." Why don't we sell him to slavery and then tell dad that he died? And so that's what they did. So they sold him into slavery. And so for years, in fact, most of what we see about Joseph's story in the Bible is this story of of Joseph experiencing, you know, obviously being sold into slavery, living in slavery. uh, And then he's falsely accused at some point. So he goes to prison. He's in and out of jail. He's in slavery. Just a difficult deal that he's going through, difficult circumstances. Then later in his life, some things happen and he's kind of elevated to first in command in Egypt. So what happens is there's a famine in the land and Joseph's uh, dad and his brothers come to, to, to get food from Egypt. And unbeknownst to them, Joseph has been elevated to this position and he's actually the guy they're coming to, right? And so God has done all of these things to get Joseph to that point at that time. And then it's, here's what Joseph says in that story, the end of that story. Genesis 50 verse 20, it's a great verse. He says this, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God, I love that. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In other words, what Joseph is saying here is this He's saying, Who knew? Who knew that all those years ago when I was literally in a pit? Who knew that all those years when I was sitting in prison, when I was falsely accused, when I didn't know how to make sense of anything that was going on around me, when I was sold into slavery? Who knew? that God was actually orchestrating a series of events that would cause me to be right there at that perfect time to be able to provide for my family, those people around me and bless me and them in ways I never could have imagined before. Who knew that the strong arm of God was at work in action behind the scenes all these years and I had no idea. My circumstances didn't feel that way. It didn't appear that way. Literally, when I'm in a pit, I can't see anything but darkness. But God... Oh, isn't that great? But God, oh man, but God's arm is at work. The presence of pain does not mean the absence of God. Does not mean the absence of God. He's at work. Look, look what he does next. He dives deeper into that idea. This is so good. Your way, verse 19, your way was through the sea. Your path through the, through the great waters, yet your footprints uh, were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. I'm going to talk about this story again. We've already talked about it once in the sermon, but this is what Asaph's doing. He said, hey man, he's saying, this is, uh, I'm going to recall back to what happened when God uh, let his people go from captivity in Egypt. So remember the story, God's people, Charlton, you know, he's out and they're in. And so in front of them, uh, on the, they think they're free. But as they make their way out of captivity, what they see in front of them is the Red Sea. Behind them, what they didn't know and what they were learning was that Pharaoh had changed his mind. And so he sends out literally hundreds of his best soldiers to chase them down, bring them back to slavery and captivity in Egypt. So in front of them, what they thought was their freedom is the Red Sea behind them are the armies of Pharaoh. And so what do they do? And so Asaph says, you know what? You know what? Actually, what they couldn't see and what they didn't know was that God's way for them. Listen, listen, listen. God's way for them to find freedom was through the sea. And maybe in your life, God's way for you to really find freedom for you to really find freedom is through the sea. And, and God's been doing this with his people since the beginning of redemptive history. In fact, you can go back to stories in the Bible and you can see this play out. One of my favorites is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All right, just an aside for a second. Um, <clears throat> when I was nine years old, the pastor uh, at my church was preaching a sermon on uh, the book of Daniel and the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and uh, so now I gave my heart to the Lord. I'll never forget it. I, I felt my sin, understood my sin, and felt the presence of God in a deeper way than ever before. I gave my heart to Jesus that night. But here, here's something I didn't know. I, I thought he was saying Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I thought the whole time he was saying Shadrach, Meshach, and a Billy Goat. All right, Billy Goat. I, listen, I'm from Alabama. Give me some grace here, okay, Billy Goat. That has nothing to do with the sermon. I just thought it was funny. So, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, they, they refuse to bow down to idol gods, and so they are bound and cast into the fiery furnace. And uh, y'all know the story if you've been around church. Cast into a fiery furnace is hot, and so the guards come back and they go, Man, uh, what had bound them is now burned off. That's important. What had bound them is now burned off. But hey, 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 I thought we put three guys in there. There's four. There's four in there. Wait, the fourth looks like the son of God. See Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their way was through the sea, or in. The, we can say it another way, in the fire. Their way was through the sea, and it was in the presence of that fire, in the presence of the sea, that difficult season of their life. That what had them bound was burned away, and it was in the middle of that fire. Amen. Y'all clap for that. That's awesome. Yeah. Amen. It it was in the middle of that fire. It was in the middle of the sea that they learned in a more desperate and deep way than they ever knew before the very presence of the Son of God. Amen? Oh, that's awesome. So listen, 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 listen. Here's the deal. Here's what Asaph is saying by appealing to that story in the middle of his own doubts. Here's what he's saying. He's remembering this truth right here. It's this. That God never wastes a hurt. And that for you... The way for you, like the, like the Israelites going through the Red Sea, for you, the way to real freedom in your life, maybe, maybe, through the sea. For you, the way to be broken free of what has you bound may be through the sea. Man, some of you can totally relate to that. That's your story. I can relate to that. Several years ago, uh, I, my way was through the sea. I went through a very difficult season of my life. Over Literally, over the course of about three months, everything in my life flew apart at the seams. Uh, My marriage was in trouble. Uh, The worst it had ever been in my 13, 14 years of marriage back in those days. Uh, I had to change jobs, and that was more emotional than I expected that it would be. Um, I, because of that, we had to move and we lost a lot of our support system, a lot of our friends. And so we felt very alone. And then not long after that, my dad had a heart attack, almost died, had to have four bypasses, had to fight back from all that stuff and changes in sort of his emotions and all kinds of things that were going on. Then in the middle of that, my daughter was diagnosed with a heart condition and then a severe eye condition. Then my wife was diagnosed with a heart condition. I mean, it was just literally over like one summer that all happened. It was over the course of those three months that God did something incredible in my life that I didn't expect, didn't want, but afterward am thankful for. And here's what it was. Um, Back then, I used to journal not diary, journal, all right? Uh, I used to journal uh, in this little thing on my phone, this little app that uh, you kind of do it digitally and then allow you to take a picture and attach it to whatever you wrote in the journal so that you can remember it in a multi sensory kind of way. And so I love that. Okay, I'm a visual person. And so uh, I, I went back the other day and I found an entry that I had put in there and it was literally a picture of me uh, in the bed with the covers up to my neck. And I had taken a picture kind of from my perspective of me in the bed, all the lights off, all the blinds closed, laying in the bed, and the caption that I had written down back then was this, this is another one of those can't get out of bed days. You ever felt that way? Listen, my tank was completely empty, was completely empty. But here's what happened through that whole, the painful deal that was going on in me, I had a pastor told me one time, I had been a pastor for years and sort of stepped away from the church for a while during that season. And, And a pastor told me this, he said, Hey Chris, you know what's happening right now? He said, maybe it's more important what God wants to do in you right now than what God wants to do through you. Right now, you know what I learned? I learned during that during that season of my life that things that I already knew intellectually, but I began to embrace them in an emotional way and walk in them more and more. And it was this: it was man. I I literally am not, without Jesus, I'm not a good enough father. I can't be, right? I'm not a good enough preacher or teacher or pastor or whatever it is. I'm I'm not good enough without Jesus. I can't, no matter how uh, talented or not talented any of us are, we're not good enough without Jesus. I just can't do it without Jesus. I need his presence every day in my life. Listen, I learned, I learned, I learned that God never wastes a hurt. And in that season of my life, he deepened my desperation for him and my dependence on him in ways that that I don't see another way that he could have done that. You You know what I learned? I learned that my way was through the sea. My way to freedom was through the sea. Amen, amen. Listen, listen. But it's not just about what God wants to do in you. Maybe your way through the sea for you is because of not just that, but what God, what God wants to do through you, right? Um, I heard this phrase a few years ago, and I love it. This, this, this right here. It won't be on the screen, but I'll just tell you. Your greatest ministry usually comes... From your greatest misery, your greatest ministry usually comes from your greatest misery. God never wastes a hurt, not just in you, but through you. Listen, let me give you some examples. My grandmother died when she was 74 years old. She had breast cancer. And there were seasons like it, 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 she, she contracted cancer and then it went away and then it came back and, and then she died. And so this was kind of a long process. And, and I remember during the season when her cancer had gone away, we were excited and thankful. But you know what she did? She continued in this rhythm. Of continuing to go to the oncologist in the, in the cancer center where she'd provide, uh, be provided treatment in the same way that she did while she was receiving treatment and seeing the doctors. Do you know why? Because she didn't want to go to see the physicians. She wanted to go to see the patients. And so she would make her way around that waiting room. It wasn't even there for treatment. Make her way around that waiting room and find, find people who in their eyes looked like they were running on empty. And she'd go up to them and she'd say, hey, you know what? You know what? God is faithful. And the presence of your pain does not mean the absence of God. And she would pray with them, and she would remind them that, man, God never wastes the hurt. That Maybe the way to freedom for you is, is, is through the sea. You, you know what my grandmother was, was doing? She was allowing her greatest misery to become her greatest ministry. She had to wait nearly 74 years for that to happen, but God did those things in her. Her way was through the sea. He didn't waste her hurt, and he used her greatest misery for her greatest ministry. I can tell you multiple stories of that in our own church family. There's one family in our church who's had multiple miscarriages, and they've dealt with that for years. And you know what they've said? They say, "You know what? You know what? Right now, we're just going to kind of rest in the fact that God is sovereign, but here's what we want to do. We want to minister to other families who are dealing with those same issues. And so what we're going to do is, uh, we want when somebody fills out a prayer request on the Connect card that's not confidential that can be shared, I want you to share it with us so that we can personally pray for those people who are dealing with uh, miscarriages and infertility and those kinds of issues. Personally pray for them by name and minister to them in any way we can. You know what that couple's doing? That couple's not realizing that God never wastes a hurt, that those their way was through the sea, their greatest misery will become their greatest ministry. And it is right. I can tell you a story about a former pastor in our church who was let go, uh, early, you know, what what seemed like forced to early retirement and he just didn't understand it. It was a difficult season of his life, but now he came to the bridge and, uh, and now what he's doing is he's using his experience as a pastor in a way that he sees as his greatest ministry through serving every week in our growth track to help people take next steps in their faith. You know what he's doing? He's taking that pain in his life and recognizing that God was active and God was working and his greatest misery became his greatest ministry. You see, God never wastes a hurt, all right? Let's go on, let's go on. Let's, this, is my, this is my favorite part of this sermon here, I think. Let's check this out. When the waters saw you, oh God, when the waters saw you, they were Hold on to that word. It's important. They were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings, I love this phrase. This should, this should be, this is a tweetable phrase right here. The, your lightnings lighted up the world. That's beautiful. The earth trembled and shook. All right, so, so here's what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, look, He's using something called anthropomorphism, okay? Now, here's what this is. This is a literary technique that's used to describe a concept that's hard to understand outside of using this literary technique. And, And what it means is, it means anthropomorphism is assigning human characteristics to things that are not human in order to communicate something specific. All right. So here's an example of anthropomorphism. All right. Anybody, any Lightning McQueen fans in the house? No, didn't think so. All right. Uh, this is anthropomorphism right here. Uh, Here's another one. By the way, Pastor Josh sent me this this week. He said, this is how I feel every Sunday after preaching five services. This is it right here. Uh, Anybody feel that way on Monday? Anybody feel that way? Yeah, Uh, that's anthropomorphism. Here's one more. This is my current favorite meme on the internet right now. All right, here it is. It's when you get unsweet tea. Any unsweet tea? All right, uh, hey. Any unsweet tea people in the house, just so we can make fun of you right now. Anybody? All right. Hey, this is the South. You got to drink sweet tea. All right. Got to drink sweet tea. This is anthropomorphism right here. All throughout the Bible, you see anthropomorphism used as a literary technique to help people understand concepts about God that seem like they're beyond our comprehension. And so biblical writers will use them to say, man, This about God that you wouldn't have understood otherwise. Now, Asaph is using anthropomorphism here at the end of this psalm. He says, man, the the waters were afraid of you. Your lightnings light up the sea, right? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to teach you something that's so amazing that in the middle of your circumstances, while you're inside the pit, while you're trying to figure out what's going on and get your feel for what's really going on, while you're doubting God and questioning, is he really there? Asa says, man, I want to show you something that seems incomprehensible. It's so great. Here's what it is. It's this right here. Remember the word fear. All right, here we go. It's this. Whatever you fear, fears God. Listen, listen. Your loneliness fears God. Your doubt fears God. Your diagnosis fears God. Your broken marriage or the hate that you have for your ex fears God. Your shame fears God. Your addiction fears God. Your fear fears God. Listen, listen, listen. Whatever you fear fears God. And so Asaph says, look, 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 look. I know that God is active and he's moving even when it seems like he's not. I know that in the middle of the situation, it hurts, but God never wastes a hurt. And I know that whatever is in front of me that looks like it's so painful that I don't see a way out, even though I fear it, whatever I fear, whatever I fear, fears God. Listen, that's powerful. Amen? That's powerful. Whatever I fear, fears God. Yeah. Man. Amen. Amen. Listen. Uh, there's a story that I love that really kind of captures all of these things that Asaph is saying. It's, it's a story of my favorite hymn. Have you ever heard the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul"? It's my favorite old hymn. It was written by a guy named Horatio Spafford. Uh, Horatio Spafford was a wealthy businessman in Chicago in the 1800s. In 1871, the Great Chicago Fire wiped out about two-thirds of his assets. And so he found himself in the same place Ace of just Go, man, I don't even understand what's going on. What, how, I can't make sense of all of this. He says, what, what our family needs is a vacation. And so he gathers up his wife and his four daughters, and he sends them across uh, the ocean to, uh, to, to, to Europe. And he says, man, y'all go ahead. I'm going to clean up some things here, take care of some things. I'll be on ahead. Y'all go on ahead. I'll be there later. And so Horatio Spafford sends his wife and his daughters off about halfway across the ocean. Uh, Their boat collides with another boat and crashes, sinks, sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And his four daughters were killed uh, in in the crash. His wife survived. And she actually wrote back to him and said, I survived at sea alone. And so he's completely broken now, right? His life has flown apart at the seams. He doesn't see a way out. And so he decides, look, the best thing I'm going to do, the best thing I can do is I'm going to go meet my wife and I'm going to connect with my friend, D.L. Moody, who was a great preacher of that generation, who was in uh, England at the time. And so uh, he sails across the ocean. And as he gets to the point, he tells a story, as he gets to the point where, which was about where his daughters uh, died, he said, the Lord spoke to me in an incredible way and began to show me that though uh, I didn't understand and couldn't make sense of all this and didn't see God working and thought God had abandoned me and thought I had done something to make God mad, what I began to see was that God's strong arm was at work, that God had not abandoned me, that God was still faithful, that what I feared feared God. And so he penned the words to that great old hymn as well, my soul, and <clears throat> say this, when peace like A river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever 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 my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul i love that song i love that song because of the truth in those lyrics That song represents what Asaph has told us in this text. And some of you are here today, and you're just here waiting, needing, desperate for the strong arm of God to move in your life. Your tank is on empty, and you are looking for hope, and you can't make sense of everything that's going on in your life. Do you know the reason you can find hope? Do you know the reason? Do you know the reason God's strong arm is moving? It's because God's strong arm became visible in Jesus, his son. In fact, if you read uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 53, that's literally what Isaiah 53 is about, that God's strong arm became visible in Jesus. And you know what Jesus did on the cross? Jesus on the cross didn't just stretch out one strong arm. He stretched out two strong arms. And you know what he did? He took on himself all your sin and all your shame and all your hurts and all your addictions and all the pain caused by circumstances that were either created by you or by somebody else. He took all of that stuff on himself. And do you know what he declared on the cross? And the words that I'm about to tell you were not him saying, My life's over. The words that he declared on the cross were him saying, those things are not what I intended for you. I want you to find freedom. And so those things, because of what my strong arms are doing on the cross, those things must run away and hide. Those things must sit down and shut up, right? Because of the strong arms of Jesus, he declared, it is finished. It is finished. It is finished. Amen. Amen. And listen, you know what happened? God's uh, wrath poured out on Jesus so that it wouldn't have to pour out on you so that like the nation of Israel, we can walk through to freedom. We can find freedom. God's wrath poured out on Jesus so it wouldn't have to pour out on you so that what is poured out on you and me in the middle of our pain and hurt is oceans upon oceans of God's grace. Oceans upon oceans of God's grace. Listen, listen, My prayer for us church family is that we will feel the weight of those oceans of grace in the middle of our difficult circumstances that we can't make sense of knowing that nothing is wasted, that God is moving and God is in control and what we fear, fears God so that we are able to say it is well with my soul. That's my prayer for us. Hey, let's pray together. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that in the middle of Circumstances that we just can't ever seem to make sense of. And we just can't figure out, have you abandoned us? What are you doing? Do I deserve this somehow? You're saying, no, 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 no. I'm working and it's not wasted. And I'll bless you in ways you can't ever imagine. God, would you help us with your grace, not just to know that intellectually, would you help us to feel and to walk in those realities? And Father God, we know that uh, many of us, our ways may be through the sea. And so God, we recognize that doesn't mean you've left us. That only means that you're working in us and you wanna work through us. And so God, with your grace, would you do that? And would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, the great blessing that that pain is in our lives because of the amount of grace it allows us to press into because of what Jesus has done. Jesus, thank you that you are visible in your, in God's strong arm as you went to the cross and then defeated death with your resurrection in Jesus name. Amen.